0: We're uh, um, on the second of a series which began uh, last week um, looking at the life of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. Last week we uh, saw how he was converted in Acts chapter 9. This week we're looking at the first of his recorded um, sermons of any length anyway in Pisidian Antioch. I have a question for you. It's this. What do Osama bin Laden, Professor Stephen Hawking and a drunken yob all have in common? Well there's usually a wisecracker who comes up with something. Let me suggest to you what I think they all have in common. They actually all live by a big story about the world. So, Bin Laden's story is a story of Western Christian oppression of uh, Muslims, of Allah's intention to defeat all non-Muslims by, by force, and of the necessity of faithful Muslims to uh, achieve Allah's victory by, through violence. That shapes his whole life. Or uh, Stephen Hawking's story is uh, of uh, a world entirely governed by understandable rules. Rules that all fit together, in fact, in one simple model. A model that um, uh, Stephen Hawking famously said will help us to know the mind of God. That's... uh, Hawking's vision. His big story by which he lives. And the drunken yob? Well, the drunken yob on Saturday night, at least, his big story is that there is nothing better in this world to do than to eat, drink and be merry. So off he goes and does it. We all actually live lives by a big story. Clever people um, um, uh, these days, call it a meta narrative—a story behind the stories, a story which which helps us to understand the whole of the world, and that uh, um, places us in it. Quite how we come by our particular big story about the world is perhaps not quite as obvious as we may think. Most people think that they've just observed the world and uh, looked with an objective eye and decided that this is the truth, this is the, how the world works. A long time ago, actually, uh, a man called Thomas Kuhn wrote, wrote a book uh, called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, where he showed that in science, uh, in fact, people don't work like that. They're not just uh, collecting all the knowledge together and then finding a pattern that naturally falls out. They already have a pattern in their mind. And they select the information that comes to them uh, according to whether it fits that pattern or not. And just occasionally, said, said Kuhn, in fact the weight of evidence against that pattern that they have spotted becomes so overwhelming that there's a, there's a revolution, there's a complete shift And some clever person, like Einstein or whatever, says, no, here's a new pattern that fits the evidence better. But until that happens, we blank out things that don't fit how we think the world ought to function. And only look at the things that fit our pattern. Well, the Apostle Paul had a certain path that he observed in the world. A certain big story that he was living his life by, that that his life was shaped by. Actually at this point he's not called Paul and he's not an apostle or at least in in Acts chapter 9 he wasn't that we saw last week. He was called Saul. Saul's big story was about The God of the whole universe who chose the nation of Israel from amongst all the nations to be a nation devoted to God. Those who would lead Israel astray from this devotion to God needed to be restrained, to to be punished and even killed if necessary. The second element of his story was that one day Israel God's nation would have a great king who would rule the whole world, sometimes called the Messiah or the Son of God. The Old Testament he knew was full of predictions about it. And he was absolutely certain that this chap Jesus, who had appeared on the scene recently, was not that king. He didn't fit the uh, web, the pattern that he had built up for his understanding of the world. And therefore, followers of this man, Jesus, must be suppressed, opposed, even killed if necessary. That was his small part in the great story that he understood of what God was doing in the world. But then he met Jesus. We saw that last week. And suddenly he had to reevaluate his whole story. Suddenly he had to go back to square one. After uh, those events recorded in Acts chapter 9, Paul more or less disappears off the scene. In fact, um, historians tell us he was probably... Um, um, off camera, so to speak, for ten years. He uh, finally turns up again in Tarsus, his, uh, uh, his birthplace, and Barnabas takes him down to the great city of Antioch in the eastern Mediterranean. This was a city where Jews and Gentiles mixed and where, um, for the first time, a mixed Jewish and Gentile church had started to grow up. And Paul, this uh, Jew who had met Jesus, was ideal person, said Barnabas, to uh, teach this mixed Jewish-Gentile church. Well, he teaches uh, the, the church in Antioch for a while and, uh, and uh, then at the beginning of Acts uh, chapter 13, we find the Apostle Paul heading off with his friends on a missionary journey. He goes to Cyprus, he finally arrives in Pisidian Antioch, I don't know whether you can see, see that there, um, in uh, the Roman province of, uh, of Galatia. Uh, Acts chapter 13, though, is devoted mainly to this sermon that Paul preached to fellow Jews in the synagogue. Luke records it at considerable length because he wants us to see how Paul's understanding of God's big story of the world has changed. That's what we're going going to look at. How Paul has gone through his own revolution. He hasn't actually thrown out the Bible, he hasn't thrown out the Old Testament, he hasn't actually abandoned most of the things that he believed about God. But he's actually seen something crucial that puts a new slant, a new shift on his Bible that revolutionises his world and ours. Let's go through the story then that Paul tells his fellow Jews. First of all, it is a story about God's faithfulness to his people. In verses 16 to 25. First of all, he records God's faithfulness in giving his people an inheritance. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel, verse 16, and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me, the God of the people of Israel chose our forefathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt with mighty power. He led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for 40 years in the desert. He chose Israel, says Paul. He prospered them in a foreign land, in the land of Egypt. And finally, he delivered them from oppression in that land. It was faithfulness Despite their sin, says Paul, faithfulness uh, um, uh, nevertheless that meant he had to endure their conduct in the desert. God was faithful and gave them an inheritance in the promised land. He was faithful too is in uh, giving them leaders um, First of all, he gave them judges, verse 20. Um, After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then, says Paul, he gave them, uh, or Saul at this stage, then he, he gave them a king, verse 21. People asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After that, he actually gave them a better king. Verse 22, after removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I've found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He'll do everything I want him to do. And finally, he gave them the great leader that they had always been looking for. Verse 23, From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Saviour, Jesus, as he promised. And again, this is faithfulness to God's people despite their sin. Do you see in verse 21 he says, the people asked for a king? If you go back to the record of that in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, we find God quite clearly saying, they are rejecting me as their king but nevertheless I will give them one. God, God works out his good purposes in the nation of Israel despite their sin. He brought them to the promised land despite their sin. He, brought, uh, he gave them a leader despite their sin. But what's crucially in this, in this recounting of God's uh, history with his people? It is uh, a faithfulness which always involved Replacement replacement first of first of all of sinful nations, verse nineteen he overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as they as their inheritance these uh, the, These nations were were sinful the, the uh, nation of Israel had to wait a good number of years before. The sin of the Amorites, as uh, God puts it, had had reached its full extent before God was prepared to see them overthrown. But overthrown they were and replaced by people after God's heart. Or, uh, uh, again, the replacement of sinful leaders. He just uh, drops in, in verse 22, after removing Saul. Saul, who was a failed king. He gave them instead David, a man after my own heart. And then uh, uh, when he describes in verse 24 the ministry of John the Baptist, we see see another uh, uh, hint of, uh, of replacement. First of all, we see a stark message about the spiritual state of Israel itself. Verse 24 Before the coming of Jesus, John, John the Baptist, preached repentance and baptism to all the people. Repentance and baptism for God's people, for the people whom God had been faithful to and looked after all this time. Well, perhaps repentance, they had to repent all the time. But baptism was for, for pagans, for outsiders, if they wanted to join the nation of Israel. No, no, no. So, Saul, we need to understand that uh, God's visible people, the nation of Israel, were as good as outsiders in a profound sense. They needed to, to, to show that by actually joining the people of God for the first time in baptism. Could it be that they're going to be thrown out, those who will not be baptised, just like the Canaanites have been overthrown, just like that Saul had been removed? John the Baptist says it's even more profound than that. Even he who was the most righteous, the epitome of the nation of Israel, even he, in one sense, is going to be replaced by someone better. Verse 25. As John was completing his work, he said, "Who do you think I am? I am not the one. No, but he is coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Paul, Paul's understanding has gone through a revolution. He looks back over all his understanding and he says, no, I see God constantly replacing, replacing sinful nations, replacing sinful kings and even in John the Baptist replacing Israel itself with someone better. One whom even John the Baptist himself was not worthy to untie his sandals. Actually God still works according to those principles in the way that he governs his world. He is faithful to us despite our sin. He tolerates our grumbling and rebellion as he did in the desert. He uses our bad choices for good ends as he did when they asked for a king. But he is also always, in the end, in the process of replacement. Like Canaan, he still brings down nations when their sin has got very great. There is no kingdom, no nation, which is eternal. Like uh, Saul, he still brings down individuals when they stop worshipping him. And he replaces them. He raises up someone better. And just look for a moment at the vibrancy of the non-Western church, of the extraordinary growth of the church in China, of the uh, 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 or the church in Africa, or the church in the church in Latin America, and then look, look at the look at the rather um, uh, uh, moribund state, spiritual state of Western Europe, when uh, when once it was flourishing and, and the centre of of, of of a marvellous Christian culture, and you will see how God brings down and replaces. But actually, that's to get ahead of ourselves a, a little bit. So Paul is looking at the nation of Israel. Israel itself lived under this great principle of God until one day someone came along who was never replaced: Jesus. That's uh, what uh, Paul, Saul gets on to in verses 26 to 37. He was rejected, condemned, executed even by, uh, um, uh, by his own people. Verse 27, the people of Jerusalem and the rulers did not recognise Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Yes, yes. Um, He was uh, um, rejected by his own people, but it was according to the Scriptures. God had always anticipated it. Verse 29 um, makes that case again. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from a tree and laid laid him in a tomb. He was um, not only rejected, condemned and executed. The uh, sermons in Acts and elsewhere, again and again, um, emphasise that he was buried too. He was laid in a tomb. Presumably because uh, this is firm evidence that he really was dead. But then uh, um, comes the uh, complete surprise. He was raised from the dead. Verse 30. Where well, God raised him from the dead. For many days he was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Now, uh, they are now his witnesses to our people. There were lots of witnesses that he was raised from the dead. And the scriptures had predicted, says Paul, that he would be raised from the dead. God had, prov- God had promised that he would provide a son who would rule over his world forever. Verse thirty-two. We tell you the good news that God, that God promised to our fathers. He has fulfilled for us. The, uh, uh, he has fulfilled it for us, their children, by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second Psalm. You are my son. Today I have become your father. That psalm predicts the global rule of a great ruler called God's Son. Verses 34 and 35. Reiterate that the the Old Testament anticipated Jesus would rise from the dead. Verse 34. The fact that God raised him from the dead never to decay is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to Abraham. So it is stated elsewhere. You will not see your holy, uh, let your holy one see decay. In uh, uh, Isaiah 55 then. All the promises that have been promised of a descendant of David are, uh, are reiterated there. And they could only be fulfilled in an eternal descendant of David, one who lived forever. Or in Psalm 16, there is this promise that the Holy One of God will not see decay. And that cannot be David himself, that great historic king, verse 36. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep, he was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. So he hasn't fulfilled that promise. Must have looked forward to one coming what David. The one whom God raised from the dead, verse 37, did not see decay. Jesus, you see, was not replaced, was not superseded God would not even allow him to stay dead because he was going to rule forever and ever. The centre of the whole of God's story about his world is Jesus The whole of the Christian story stands or falls by whether the basic facts about Jesus are true. They were predicted long before the event. The whole of the Old Testament looks forward to it. They were witnessed by many people at the time. Paul says they are the high point of God's great story about his world because before that at every stage he had needed to replace and replace and replace and replace because human society never could achieve what God intended to achieve until one day along comes this man Jesus who is irreplaceable, who is never set aside, who lives forever in all eternity and rules forever. That is the Jesus who still rules today. At one level, God continues having to replace and replace and replace, as I said. But at another more profound level, God has now seated his Son, Jesus Christ, at his right hand and he rules over all things for all time. So, one day he returns again, brings in the new heaven and the new earth, God's final replacement. And there will no longer be any tears, no longer any mourning, no longer any dying, for the old order of things has passed away. This is a story then about God's faithfulness culminating in Jesus. And it's a story about God's offer. Verses 38 and 41. An offer of forgiveness. Verse 38. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Forgiveness, which is through faith in Christ, is the central purpose of God, the central offer of God to us. Verse 39. Through him, everyone who believes, who trusts, is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Justified means acquitted by God, counted as not guilty, forgiven, and forgiveness could not be attained in any other way. Verse, uh, uh, second half of verse, uh, verse 39 says, you could not be justified from it by the law of Moses, only through Jesus. How? How does Jesus achieve that forgiveness? Paul doesn't spell it out in detail, though he does give us a hint. Back in verse 29, um, he mentions, he describes Jesus being taken down from the tree. It's a funny way actually to describe the cross, which wasn't a tree, the cross of of Jesus, but it uh, points us to something important in Paul's understanding of what was happening when Jesus died on the cross. He actually uh, expands it in his letter to the Galatians in chapter 3, a letter written to remind these people in Pisidian Antioch what he'd been teaching. And uh, he there says that Jesus' death on the cross on a tree signified that he was cursed because Deuteronomy 21, 23 says cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus actually took the curse that should have been ours, the curse that comes from our sin on himself. As he puts it there in Galatians chapter 3 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. That is how Jesus won our forgiveness. Because he paid for the consequences of our sins in his body on the cross. Why is forgiveness so important? Because it's the root of all our troubles. The root of everything that has gone in wrong in this world, and the root of everything that has gone wrong in our life. And at enormous cost, God pays so that we may be forgiven. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He rose again, never to be replaced as God's last great ruler through whom we can be reconciled again to God. But, says Paul, is an offer which can be refused. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you, he says. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish for I'm doing something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. We can refuse it. It is an extraordinary thing, as uh, as, uh, he uh, uh, acknowledges something that you would never believe, even if someone told you. And it is possible to scoff at it. But for those who don't scoff, It is our story. That's the uh, uh, thrust of what uh, happens after this great sermon. You see up to now Paul has been addressing just the nation of Israel mainly or those who were uh, uh, interested in joining the Jews and many Jews did respond positively. We see that in verses 42 and 43. But it seems that the whole city of Pisidian Antioch had started to realise this is not just a little story about one nation, this is a story about a whole world. So, uh, next uh, uh, Sabbath we find, verse 44, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And then something very interesting happens. Then the Jews, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. When people actually suddenly realised how revolutionary this message is, how it is for the whole world, and they see people actually coming and uh, to find out this this great story of stories, we find that those who have historically been associated with being the people of God, get jealous. See it again and again and again, the charismatic movement that... Uh, that that took uh, the the Western world by storm a few few decades ago, had um, uh, an enormous number of people really bickering and complaining about it through one suspects jealousy. Or uh, uh, more recently, the the growing strength of the non-Western church, especially as it's influenced uh, the Anglican communion, We find um, self-appointed sages looking down their noses at vibrant churches and being abusive towards them. Oh yes, it's a pattern that happens again and again and again. And God moves on to those who do not scoff and leaves behind those who had so much opportunity and didn't take it. Verse 46 Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly We had to speak the word of God to you first but since you rejected and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life we now turn to the Gentiles for this is what the Lord has commanded us yes it was predicted that in the Old Testament as well I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, honoured the word of the Lord and all who were appointed to eternal life believed. This is God's big story then. It is a story which begins with one nation and God's focus on one nation. But it culminates in the person of Jesus who is never replaced because he rose from the dead, offering forgiveness to us through his death on the cross, through our trusting him and a, a story now which God is determined should, should reverberate throughout the whole world. And if there are those who scoff, if there are those who look down their, nose, their noses at others, if there are those who are jealous and abusive, well God will move on from them. And that wonderful story is what shaped the Apostle Paul's life. He knew he must move on, he knew he must not be found amongst those scoffers. So, what controls your life? What story really controls your life? What do you believe about this world in your heart, at the root of your being? Because I absolutely guarantee you, what you believe at the root of your being will shape the whole of your life. You, you, you may have uh, a set of beliefs which are not very thought out, not very big really. You may think I was born to uh, grow up, find a partner, earn a living, raise children and to die. If that's what you believe about your life, all the decisions you make will, will, will just be to fulfil those expectations. Let me say to you, expand your horizons. See, see the great sweep of what God has done. His great offer of forgiveness, his offer of eternal life, his determination that actually the good news about Jesus should spread throughout the whole world and that you personally should benefit from the death of Christ on the cross, that you should be given, forgiven absolutely eternally and completely. So that one day there will be no more tears. But maybe actually your, the story you tell about your, yourself is, is worse than that. Maybe it's actually positively dysfunctional. Maybe, maybe it's, a, it's, a, it's a story that, that goes something like this. I was born to suffer and be disappointed. how could that be true If the god of the whole world should send his son to die for your sins to forgive you If the god of the whole universe should say I will never leave you or forsake you If the god of the whole universe should say one day I am making all things new He himself will wipe away every tear. How could that be true? You know, there are two great, big stories that have profoundly shaped our world today. One is the story of inevitable progress, the story that uh, scientific progress will make everyone's life better, political progress will make everyone's life fairer, economic progress will make everyone's life richer. That has taken a real battering the last generation but it is still there. Is that what your life is about? Simply pursuing greater knowledge, simply simply um, um, uh, working for a slightly better political uh, structure to the, to the country, simply chasing a bit more wealth. If you tell yourself that story, a story looks, which looks very thin today, in, in, a, in an age of growing inequality between rich and poor, in an age when a great wave can destroy rich and poor alike. You tell yourself that story, you will live by that story. And die by that story. The other, the other great story which has uh, gained gain strength is, uh, is, is, is a story of lost innocence, not now inevitable progress, but surely we need to go back to an innocent, simpler life. Environmentalism is a, is, is, is a great part of that. But that, that ignores... The fact that 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 simple, innocent life was just a myth. People died young then. Murders were much more frequent then. Now you see, the big story of this world is a story about Jesus winning forgiveness for you. A story which he wants to go to the whole world. What shapes your life? What story about the world shapes your life? Because I absolutely guarantee you, what you believe, the bottom of your heart, will shape everything Every decision you make, every path you choose, your whole life. Don't live for lies then. Be prepared, as the Apostle Paul was, to re-examine the whole of life. Because we have seen Jesus.